Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hello, Guilty Feminists. This is an extremely special extra episode. Uh, We are being joined by Bora Hassan, Amnesty Researcher on Palestine, who's currently in Jerusalem, and Dr. Khaled Dawas, a Palestinian British surgeon working in London who's just come back from Palestine. Obviously, this content is difficult to hear, but much harder to live. I know sometimes we get despondent and hopeless, but it's important to remember the work uh, that both of our guests today are doing. And I'd encourage you, if you're feeling despondent listening to it, to support their work by joining Amnesty and donating to MAP, which is medical aid in Palestine, as Dr. Khaled Dawes is a doctor. Some of you know already on the 3rd of March, there is a fundraiser at the Roundhouse in Chalk Farm. There's some incredible names on the bill and the show is called Voices for Gaza. I'm not producing this show, but I'm emceeing the show alongside Jen Brister. Um, Susan McComb is on the bill as well, but there's lots of extraordinary acts, including the Galilee Quartet, who are Palestinian, and other Middle Eastern and Palestinian acts. And there's also... um, big name British actors that you'll know, Harriet Walter and Brian Cox from Succession, for example. Now, the tickets are only £20 because they really want to fill the roundhouse, but there'll be more opportunities to give on the night should you have the means to do that. Please be aware there are 250 seats on the floor and the rest is standing room. So if you really need a seat, I recommend you book now and come early because it's unassigned on the night. This has all been put together at very short notice with a skeleton team and a small budget and an extraordinary bill for an immensely urgent cause. So we're really talking a blitz spirit here. So please, please, if you're looking for a way to support MAP, you can just buy a ticket, um, give it to someone else if you can't go. If you can come, we'd really, really appreciate it. There are some best seats in the house tickets, which is like in the dress circle of uh, the roundhouse, that are £250 each. And that's being done, obviously, to raise more funds. If you'd like one of those, email us at guiltyfeminist at gmail.com and we'll see if we can hook you up. As I said, we're not producing this gig. It's not our gig, but it's split spirit and all pull in together. That's what I'm doing this week to try and support um, MAP, who are getting much needed British doctors, medical supplies and medical equipment out there. We have listed the show on our website. Just go to guiltyfeminist.com and hit live shows or go to the Roundhouse website. Um, Thank you so, so, so much for supporting the event. And you can also give directly to MAP, of course. I also just need to quickly tell you that 
Budur Hassan, because we were interviewing her from Jerusalem and her internet was patchy and she had to go quite quickly at the end. Some of the sound quality isn't what you'd normally expect. It's perfectly fine. Uh, but I'd recommend you listen with headphones and understand the circumstances. Thank you. And now on with the podcast. Today with me, I have Boudoir Hassan, who is Amnesty International's researcher on Palestine. She previously worked as a researcher and advocacy officer at the Jerusalem Legal Aid and Human Rights Center, and as a freelance writer for several media outlets in both English and Arabic. She is based in occupied East Jerusalem. Also, I have with me Dr. Carla Dawas. Dr. Carla Dawas is a Palestinian British surgeon working in London. He was part of the first emergency medical team to visit Gaza since this latest crisis started, and he was there over Christmas and New Year. He has frequently travelled to both Gaza and the West Bank, but has worked as a doctor specifically in Gaza. His most recent visit to the West Bank was in 2022. Khaled is chairman of the UK-registered medical charity FQMS, which works with Palestinian medical schools. He's also a trustee of the Abraham Initiatives, which aims to improve the opportunities and lives of Palestinians living in Israel. He grew up in the Middle East and has family in Gaza. Khaled, you were in Gaza quite recently. Can you tell us what it was like? Going to Gaza in a time of war is very different to what it was like when I last went there, which was in the summer. I went in the summer of 2023. And the, di the difference being that the state of people's lives is much, much worse. I, I mean, I think there's no... There's no pretense that Gaza was perfect before then. I think, you know, some people talk about, hark back to Gaza being uh, well-built and green and so on beforehand, but it's not like that at all. Gaza was very impoverished, but Gaza had lived under a siege for many years, since 2007, and life was difficult for, for then. But it was a very different kind of difficulty where it wasn't the the volume of people's lives under threat, under hourly threat, as it was when I went this time around. So the first things I noticed when I went into Gaza was that the senses and the sense of what's going on hit you very quickly. As soon as you walk in through Rafah, you 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 hear the bombings, you you can see the clouds, the mushroom clouds in the distance, and you can smell the gunpowder. And then about an hour and a half later, when we were in the house we were we had uh, rented to stay in while we were there, every shelling came with a shaking of the building. So that was a very dramatic introduction to Gaza. And then the next two weeks really was about trying to acclimatize and deal with the volume of human tragedy that one sees on a regular basis, uh, even outside the hospitals. I mean, the hospitals were particularly bad because you see the extreme end of what's going on to people's lives. But driving through the streets, and we had a car that took us from our residence to the hospital every day and then took us back. You can see the the difficulty, the water collections that ha people had to do to get water for their own homes, for their own use. There was no electricity at nighttime. So at nighttime, as we watched, as we looked over the fence of our house, it was complete darkness. Um, and at nighttime, all you hear were the drones flying above overhead and the constant lights. You see a lot of lights. There are lots of surveillance planes flying over the sky skyline of, of the, uh, uh, the skies of Gaza. And uh, on average, you'd count about six or seven flashing lights, planes flying above overhead. And then obviously the, 
that the nighttime was particularly bad because of the bombing. The shelling and the bombings happened were more intense during the nighttime. So really, in summary, it was, uh, and, I, and, I, and I use this phrase because it, you know, it sounds flippant, but it's not meant to be. It's a, it's a feast for the senses. You, it's, it's everything that you perhaps don't want to see in here happening all at once. Uh, and it, it's quite a lot to absorb and process in a, quick, in a, in a fast amount of time. But you do. In, interestingly, one, after a couple of days, got very used to the shelling and the noises. It sounds incredibly stressful, even if you are consciously um, get used to it. Presumably your amygdala is constantly activated and the people that are living there all the time must be going through extreme trauma. Budor, as Amnesty's lead researcher on Palestine, can you tell us what you found while researching the current assault on Gaza? So... Since joining Amnesty in July 2022, this is the latest offensive that I'm researching on Gaza. There was a three-day offensive by Israeli forces in August 2022. There was a five-day offensive in May 2023. And in both uh, assaults, we documented war crimes and we documented mass suffering in both. And the one question that was really calling is what happens after these relatively small, relatively short offensives end. There was so much destruction, there was so much suffering, and there was so much grief. But then the October 2023 attack started. And really in terms of investigating it, in terms of the sheer immensity and the magnitude of everything, it was obviously different to any other assault that previously happened in Gaza. And in Gaza, we're talking about successive rounds of attacks within the last maybe 16 years. So there is every couple of years, there is another round of attacks which irrevocably changes people's lives. Now, in this Mm -hmm. attack, there are several patterns that we documented through our different investigation. Perhaps the most shocking of them all was the systematic wiping out of families. Almost in every strike we documented, we documented the killing of three generations of the same family, grandparents, parents, and children. Grandparents perhaps as old as 86, meaning that they have survived the Nakba, the catastrophe of 1948, meaning that they were displaced from their original homes in Israel and became refugees in Gaza after 1948. And then their children, who probably were born just after the occupation of Gaza after 1967. And then the grandchildren who knew nothing but siege, nothing but blockade, nothing but successive rounds Mm. of attacks. All these generations would be wiped out in one strike. Another thing that pattern that we documented because so many of the buildings that we investigated the the, the airstrikes on were buildings full of civilians and families and of displaced people. So the one building, say, in Rafah, would be home to families, relatives displaced from the north at the orders of the Israeli army. And then the original families who had hosted the those who were displaced, their relatives, their loved ones who had gone there to seek shelter, 
thinking, hoping that they would provide a safer place for their families, only to find out that in Gaza there is nowhere safe. We documented strikes across the Gaza Strip earlier. We, at the early stages of the war, we managed to investigate few strikes in the north and in Gaza City, but then we moved, we only could only investigate strikes in the central areas, in the Deir el-Balah area, and later mainly in the south, in Rafah. And these patterns, the patterns of bombings on entire families that would kill entire families, the pattern of direct attacks on civilians and civilian objects where our research did not find any indication that were military targets or military uh, in the vicinity or inside the homes or indiscriminate attacks that even say if there were any military targets in the vicinity of the attack, the type of weapons and then the uh, sheer strength of the attack. And as Dr. Khaled said, so many of the attacks we documented happened late at night when entire families were sleeping in their beds and when the Israeli army, upon launching the attacks, predicted or should at least have predicted and anticipated that entire families were sleeping. So many survivors told us that the first thing that they woke up to is finding themselves under the rubble and trying to scream, trying to call for their loved ones. In addition to the aftermath, of course, of these attacks, because so many of the survivors we met, because they have to be displaced, would tell us also about the guilt of surviving the attack, being the sole survivor of their families, and the difficulty of keeping up, of not really even having time to process the grief. There is something happening in Gaza over the past four months that unlike other previous attacks where at least the families could mourn, could find some space to mourn together, to collectively grieve and mourn together. In this offensive, there is no space and no time to mourn. There is no time in the sense that people would just try to find a place to stay and to try to escape the next bombing and no space in that people don't have a house, don't have a place, don't have anything to bury. The only thing that they have left of their loved ones are shreds, unrecognizable, unidentifiable shreds of their loved ones that they would have to bury in mass graves. So this denial of the right to grieve, of the right to mourn, has been so shocking in Gaza and so painful for the families to not be able to at least say goodbye to their loved ones with dignity and peace. Khaled, we've seen reports of doctors having to operate without basic medical supplies, operations without anesthetics, and of hospitals being attacked by the Israeli army. What was it like working under those conditions? We, we saw, I saw all of that. But what I would say is that the hospital we were at, which was in Dar al-Balah, the court was called the Shuhada al-Aqsa hospital, at the time had anesthetic drugs. So I, I didn't have to endure and did not, not, not observe the, the agony of seeing patients having that kind of thing done to them. But uh, I know from colleagues who I trust very much who have worked in those environments who tell me that they've done, they've, they've had to do that, operate on people without anesthesia. And the examples which particularly bring tears to my eye are, are cesarean sections and, mm. and amputations. And I think amputations, well, you know, amputations we saw, what, what tended to happen is that people would come in of all ages um, coming into the emergency department with their legs hanging by a thread. Oh. And therefore, really, and I, you know, I'm sorry to kind of describe it in detail, but I mean, th- this is what they were living through as well. Yeah, we and need to know. 
And what 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 doctors would have to do was take that thread off. I mean, it's 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 as so ridiculous as that. And so therefore, there aren't any nerves left. There are no there's no bone left to to, to, to go through. You're, you're cutting through a, a bit of thread. But but the idea of having cesarean section uh, without a general anesthetic or without any anesthesia. Uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. So th- this was this is happening, and I say this is reported to me by people who I trust very much, who I worked with when I was out there, and we know that the group that I was at, there were a couple of our colleagues went over to see what are called the shelters. The shelters are schools mainly, which have been converted to. Uh, I mean, they're they're they're, they're massive camps. They're, they're camps with concentrated numbers of people, and they are. Uh, we 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 individually worked out the space, the 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 area per person allocated to residents of the camps, and these were 1.5 square meters per resident mm. per person sheltered in those places. But going back to the question about equipment, so uh, usually when we operate here in the UK, we have a a big set of surgical equipment which are which are customized to the operation that we're doing. Uh, there will be a variety of instruments, multiple types of instruments, and so on and so forth. We will have drugs like morphine to give patients after surgery. So it's one thing doing the anesthetic without doing the operation without anesthesia, but there's another thing also about what do you do with patients who do have anesthesia but wake up with a massive cut or something very traumatic done to their bodies without any pain control. Mm. And we did have a shortage of morphine. There, were, I mean, I, I witnessed myself patients waking up after anesthesia uh, in the post-operative recovery area in the theatres of the hospital, screaming in pain, and, and there was nothing that one can do. Uh, it's you know, it's you feel very hopeless, and and it forces you to walk away because you feel so helpless in in dealing with this. So we dealt with that. The instruments we dealt with were very minor. You know, we we had we had the minimal sets of instruments, and I would also add to that: it's not just the availability of instruments, but also we had no water. There was no sterilization. The instruments that were being used were probably washed in water um, between patients. So again, the issue of infection control and hygiene and so on just doesn't exist. We had to wash, we, we had to get ready for, th- for surgery one day without any water. We, I happened to have alcohol gel in my pocket, which MAP gave me before we went out, and that's what we used to get ready for, for operating. I keep hearing there's no working hospitals left in Gaza. Is that the case now? Is it more like makeshift uh, medical areas? Are there are there hospitals, but they just don't have any supplies? Like, what's the situation? So, to, to define a hospital as non-workable, I mean, it's it's a multifaceted issue. The, to, for a hospital to be working, you've got to have the staff primarily, but you've also got to have the facilities, and the facilities include, in in a case of war situation like this, you need to have operating theatres which function, and functioning again means staff, means equipment, means sterilization, means all those kind of things. And for those functions to be for these hospitals to be out of out of order or non-functioning means that they don't have all those components to make them function as a hospital would do. And in, in addition to that, the, the main hospitals in Gaza, so we talk about 35 or 36 hospitals in Gaza. And I remember telling my fa- when my father said this to me, my father was, was born in, before 1948 and went to Gaza as a refugee and was surprised that there are, there's such a thing as 36 hospitals in Gaza. Not, there aren't really 36 hospitals in Gaza. There are maybe a handful of hospitals which can deal with anything more complex than wound dressings and minor perhaps procedures, 
And the examples of these are, for example, Al-Shifa in Gaza City, uh, the Indonesian hospital, Kamal Adwan, had surgical departments. Where I was working, Dar al-Balah, Shuhada al-Aqsa was a hospital which was a small hospital which had two operating theatres and didn't deal, with any, didn't deal with anything complex, converted to a massive hospital which were dealing with rather than 100 patients, was dealing with 700 patients. And where the operating rooms were suddenly expanded by use of other spaces to make four or five rather than two. You go back and you go to Khan Yunus, we know that Nasser is the main hospital there, which is now out of function because for, for those reasons I mentioned. The European hospital there is uh, is the only functioning hospital I know so far at this particular point in time. In Rafah, there aren't any hospitals that you could really consider as major hospitals. I visited Rafah when I was there and we saw the hospitals, we saw the facilities. There are two hospitals with a combined bed capacity of about 100 beds, no intensive care beds, no CT scanners. You cannot operate a in that right. So that hospital is really pointless to call it a hospital. So it's not what we would think of as a hospital with all the different wings. It's more like either an A&E or it's a, a place where you can go, but you know, it's there's some facilities, but now they've run out of all the supplies. Attacks on healthcare facilities, um, preventing hospitals from accessing basic supplies. Is this something that Amnesty International have been examining? Absolutely. Um, so we know that under international law, hospitals are protected facilities under international law. And even if, say, hospitals lose their protected status because they have been used by or they were used at the time of being attacked by armed groups to launch attacks, which in so many of the cases, Israeli authorities have yet to provide solid evidence that this was the case. But even if this was the case, attacking these or targeting these places should still abide by principles of international law, including distinction and proportionality. And and, and so there are different levels of violations. But then there is also the other dimension of targeting hospitals, which means targeting hospitals by failing to provide or by preventing the provision of medical aid or necessary uh, material that is required for the hospital to function, including fuel, including water, including medical supplies. And we know that under the provisional measures that the International Court of Justice indicated, among these provisions, measures was the immediate provision of aid and um, of aid into Gaza, which Israel has so far over almost a month since that was issued by the International Court of Justice, Israel has so far failed to do. Uh, and, and this is something we are investigating. And then there is obviously also the issue of access, even accessing hospitals. And there's the other issue, which is detaining or forcibly hospital staff and detaining them for prolonged period under the so-called unlawful combatants law uh, and denying them even a visit of the lawyer, denying them the right to see a judge. The smallest semblance of due process. Just two days ago, there was yet another petition filed by several Israeli human rights organizations to the Israeli Court of Justice to disclose the fate and whereabouts of those who were detained from Gaza and are still held in Israeli jails, including doctors. And Israeli authorities for the, the Israeli court, for the first, first time, has refused to disclose whereabouts or dis disclose reasons of detention. And we know that the detention conditions, especially of people held from Gaza, including doctors, including doctors, released doctors that Amnesty International spoke to, are nothing short of horrendous.
in terms of torture and other treat treatment which is rife, in terms of being denied proper food, in terms of conditions, in terms of being shackled and handcuffed. Oh my God. And then also not knowing whether your family back home in Gaza is alive or dead. And then leaving and returning to Gaza with, with doctors struggling to even move their hands because of the handcuffs that they were subjected to during the, all the days, all the period that they spent in the state Iman, which is a jail inside uh, Bir Sabah in Israel. So all of this together, the attacks on hospitals, the denial on the uh, severe restrictions on entry of medical aid and medical equipment and uh, restrictions on doctors, including detention of doctors and forcible disappearance of doctors and uh, the difficulty of people accessing hospitals. Say, if uh, Israel does go ahead with its plans to uh, launch a ground attack on Rafah, as Dr. Khalid said, the functioning hospitals in Rafah are more like clinics. They're not hospitals. So they will not be able to deal with the amount of injuries and they will not be able. So this means that those who are injured in attacks will not be able to access anything resembling proper and decent medical aid. And they will not be able to leave Rafah to receive medical treatment in nearby Khan Yunus because the biggest hospital hospital in Khanunas Nasser Hospital has been put out of functioning and the other hospital, European hospital, will definitely not be able to cope with this amount of injured people. So all of this together mm -hmm. should be seen in the context of the attacks on the civilian population in Gaza and the attempts to make Gaza as a whole uninhabitable because even if this war ends now, what has happened to the health infrastructure in Gaza, to the health system in Gaza? which was even before the war was really so uh, troubled, almost in tatters in so many ways because of the long Israeli blockade that had been imposed in Gaza since 2007. So we're talking about a, a medical sector and a healthcare sector that is already struggling even before the war. But now it has been almost entirely destroyed and it will require years and maybe more to just even begin be operating once more. That is just so horrendous and things I didn't know about doctors being arrested and then not being able to use their hands because the way they've been shackled and treated. I, I'm really uh, aware, Khaled, that you have family in Gaza. Are you able to reach them? How are they? Do you know? So from the beginning of the war, I made a conscious effort to try and stay in touch with them regularly Never asking the question, how are you? Because it's um, it's a pointless question. But uh, just just checking in to see whether they received my 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 messages and that they there is a response. So the the family I have are, as I mentioned earlier, my my father's family primarily, but also my mum's family. My mum's family moved from uh, the area called the Lid, which is in near Tel Aviv now, and and moved down the coast in 1948, and they settled in Gaza. Most of them left as my, as my parents did. But the, my, my first-degree cousins are still there on both sides of the family. And we have family who are in Jabalia in the north, right on the, on the, on the, on the front of the battles and the, war, the, 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 the shelling, and their family who were in Gaza City and families further south. I'm in touch with a few of them. The, the family in the north in Jabalia are the most difficult to get a hold of. And, these are, and this is a cousin of mine who I've known. I you know, met him when I was a young child and been in touch with him on and off ever since and he had a you know tragic story to tell me back in november he, his son 
who is in his 20s just walked out of the house one day to get some items uh, and didn't come back. And he was found and uh, shot dead uh, two days later. So, you know, they, and I I can't imagine what what they're going through uh, on a personal level. But in addition, they've they've had to move homes. Then he's now sheltering. He was until about three weeks ago, sheltering in a school in Jabalia. But I, I don't hear from him often enough because I, I there's no you know, as you, as you probably know there's no communication it's very difficult when they do get internet and I when I was in Gaza I was told that in the in the north in Gaza City there were three spots where people can get internet access and they're sort of higher spots in in the city uh, so that that's been very difficult I've got family who've moved from Gaza City itself and and some of them managed to get out to Egypt uh, and in fact were in the news recently because they managed to get visas to go to Australia for a few months. Uh, to stay there while things settle down until they reassess what they're going to do with their lives. Because again, like Mudur was saying, what what happens when the war stops is nothing to go back to. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's intentional. Uh, and then and then I met some other family who I'd not, not met before. They're more distant relatives in Dar al-Balah who came to the hospital when I was staying there to because I wasn't allowed to travel out to the hospital. I had to ask if they wanted to come along. And I was very careful to insist that they shouldn't Put themselves in any danger, so there are lots. Of, there are. I do have family there. I have a on my, my maternal side somebody who was quite close to the hospital, and I, and I saw him a couple of times. And I've been seeing him in Gaza whenever I've been going. Uh, and you know, it's you. Part part of me going there was some emotional support, and I think, you know, if I to you know to to be really very realistic about it, what did I achieve by going there as a as a, as a doctor as a surgeon? I. You know, I, I shoot very little. I, I went there, uh, and I think what I provided was probably moral support. Was provided a voice to be able to come back and say I saw what was going on directly, and I'm I, I'm a witness to what happened. But the volume of need is so massive that I can't say that individuals like me going out there are making a massive difference. We're not. We're you know we've got a bit of relief, and we feel that we're doing something. And 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 I feel much. You know, I'm glad that I had the opportunity, and I hope I will have the opportunity again. Um, but that's so it's, it's, it's more moral support for family and for otherwise. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, Bedor, you're joining us from East Jerusalem now, and you've been documenting the huge rise in violence across the West Bank. Can you tell us a bit about that? I'm right now in Ramallah, but I moved between Ramallah and, and Jerusalem. Um, so yes, it's kind of for many people, they think that it's only happening in Gaza, and of course, the sheer magnitude that's of what's going in Gaza is unparalleled. But violence against Palestinians continues elsewhere, uh, including um, excessive and unlawful use of force by Israeli forces, which in 2000, which last year hit unprecedented numbers, and was even on the 7th of October. And this is, you know, very important to never forget that the idea that as though life before 7th of October was utopia for Palestinians and that the calendar and history only started on the 7th of October is so deceptive, so untrue, because even before the 7th of October, we had been reporting and documenting unprecedented numbers for probably more than 20 years in administrative detentions of Palestinians in the West Bank a detention without charges of or trial, frequent raids, levels uh, of violence not seen since the Second Intifada by both Israeli settlers and Israeli soldiers, t- 
take over in, by settlers of land emboldened by the current Israeli government and all of that. So life for Palestinians, both in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, and for Palestinians inside Israel as well, has always been difficult. It's just that the 7th of October and all that it followed in terms of quantity and uh, the amount of violence, but also qualitatively the, the uh, sheer uh, uh, the methods that Israel has been using in order to displace Palestinians or push for the displacement of Palestinians, as well as violent raids almost on a daily basis, has been something striking in the West Bank. And at Amnesty, for example, we're currently documenting the ethnic cleansing and displacement of Palestinian communities, especially Palestinian herding communities from certain areas in the West Bank, from the Jordan Valley, from the South Hebron Hills. And many of these uh, displacements uh, were preceded by settler violence backed by the Israeli state or by systemic violence that has made life so difficult and so untenable for people that have they have no option but to leave. And this is important to note because there is this, and, and I know that there have been several governments that have been uh, punishing individual settlers or uh, outlawing or criminalizing individual settlers and naming them by names. But the problem is that this punishment of individual settlers ignores that at the root of this individual violence, there is a system that has promoted, tolerated, and created the environment that allowed these violence settlers to flourish. The whole business, the whole existence of settlements in the West Bank is existentially violent. It's not about it's not only about settler rampaging in Palestinian villages or burning Palestinian cars. It's a whole system of land theft, of acquisition of land, of control of resources, of making the everyday life of Palestinians so impossible, and also of designing a set of laws, which is Israel's apartheid system, to oppress and dominate Palestinians using both visible and invisible or invisibilized violence, violence that made invisible that allow these bunch of settlers to use their uh, force knowing that they have near total impunity. So this, these degrees of violence, whether by the settlers who are supported by the state and mainly by the state of Israel, its apartheid regime and the system of, of prolonged occupation, illegal occupation that has been going on on both sides. And, and then there's the apartheid system on both sides of the Green Line. All of this has created an environment that really politically, socially, economically, and with all that's happening in Gaza, the word that we frequently hear from communities we interview, from people we visit in order to carry out our investigation, is that we simply don't see any future for us here. People just mm. feel completely bereft, completely deprived mm. of any possibility of imagining, let alone living, a different future. And the thing that they keep stressing is how much this has been happening because of the complete lack of accountability for Israeli soldiers and for Israeli politicians. So is there hope? Is there a way out? Is there anything that our listeners can do to help? They're right. I think I'd say, and I, and I, I thought about this quite a lot, because... 
there's a sense, an overwhelming sense of helplessness about what's going on because whatever people seem to be doing is rebutted by the Israeli government uh, and and they carry on regardless. I think this is an opportunity, though, because people are beginning to realize what's actually what many of us have been seeing for decades uh, of what's happening uh, to Palestinians is that this is time to lose the shackles of intimidation that many people have felt when it comes to expressing their sympathy with Palestinians. And it is now very clear to people that, in fact, the, the, the story is not complex, as many people say. When we talk about this, well, it's a complicated story. Actually, it's not that complicated. There is occupation, there is suppression, there is oppression. Um, and on my side of things, I can see the results of that in terms of what people suffer through on a health on a health basis. But I think I would hope that what people can do is have the confidence to look it up, make your own minds up about what's going on. I think the story is very clear. And I think, and the, and, and the example I always think of is when people go there and they see what's going on on the ground, they realize the absence of complexity. It's actually a simple story about uh, oppression and suppression. Uh, and it's time that we spoke about it freely and therefore were able to communicate with the world and also get allies who, who believe that what we're doing is the right thing uh, and, and that we're on the right side of, of that argument. And also to engage those Israelis who do not believe in what, what the government is doing and, and also have a view about And I work with many of these Israelis myself and have done so over the last couple of years who, 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 who understand that the injustice and the... And I, and I say, I know, I, I use the, the term... You know, apartheid. Yes, but actually, we we have a different type of apartheid here. It's also our name in its own right, and that that cannot continue because in the long term, the Israelis won't going to gain, and certainly we've lost as Palestinians for a long, long time. And it's about time that that changes. Well, you can join Amnesty. You can start uh, following, helping Amnesty campaign. Is there anything else you'd like anybody else to do, or is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? I just hope that this story remains a headline story. Um, and my worry is as people get used to the idea that they it, it falls off the headlines. And I, and I wake up in the mornings and I look at my phone and look at the news and it says, you know, 170 people killed yesterday. The, those numbers can never be acceptable. Not even, not, even, not even 170th of those numbers should be acceptable. And yet they've become acceptable to many. And we're talking about, you know, ceasefire and change of conditions in the next week or two. That's a week, that's 10, 14 days of 170 killings per day, plus all the amputation. I, I would add that those people who are being killed uh, are, are, are envied by those people who are injured and living the miserable lives. And that is how bad it is. So I think we need to be very alert to this and keep it keep it in the forefront of our thinking. Thank you, Khaled. That's tragic to hear. Um, Budor? Anything you came to say that you didn't get to say or you'd like our listeners to know? Yeah, maybe just remember that even when this war ends, and it will end at one point, there is also the war after the war for the Palestinians in Gaza, for the thousands who have been left with permanent disabilities, uh, for mm. the generations who lost everything, lost their families, lost their homes, lost their income, lost their universities have no, no schools to go back to maybe for generations uh the those who have lost their infrastructure those who probably were never be able 
to return to Gaza. So there is a silent war that will begin once this war is over. So it will not be over once the bombs stop falling, because what will happen is even worse. It can be worse than what is going. But to recover, obviously, and, and start thinking and start even, you know, grieving morning their loved ones there has to be an immediate and sustained ceasefire by all parties to the conflict and only then can any process start in this context and what's also important to call for is again remember the context in which this war is happening remember that we're talking about the context of a system of domination and oppression of a system of apartheid against all Palestinians whose rights are controlled by Israel. And remember also that 70% of Gaza are either descendants of refugees or refugees themselves displaced after the 1948 Nakba. So in a sense, yeah, Palestinians do have a place to go to. They have their towns and villages inside Israel from which their parents or grandparents, they were displaced. Mm-hmm. And they continue to be denied their right of return. And this is why Gaza has always been and also, just lastly, stress on accountability. Dr. Khalid said that as a doctor, he feels what he's doing is just a drop in the sea of suffering, that he does not feel like what he's doing is helping much. But at least he's saving, or he saved, and he's saving people's lives, rights workers. We document, we bear witness. We feel the weight of the witness, the testimony that we bear because people we're talking to have barely any WhatsApp or connection to talk us to. Mm-hmm. to, to, manage yes. to, talk to us. And yet they're talking us their precious time. So keep bearing. And hopefully what we can do is bring a semblance of justice uh, through accountability to those people and the survivors. I agree. And what whatever we can do, we must do. And uh, Khaled, I'm sure that what you have done has been to raise great solidarity and hope as well as healing. Um, and what you're doing, Boudoura, bearing witness, reporting, documenting is so, so important for Amnesty International. I thank you both for your your hard and brave work. Um, and we hope that our listeners uh, listen and share, continue to talk, continue to keep it in the headlines, uh, continue to post Donate to MAP if you don't know where else to donate to because they're getting medical aid to Palestine. Thank you so, so much. And uh, and if everyone could join Amnesty who hasn't, uh, follow Amnesty on the socials if you haven't. Uh, it's really something you could do if you're feeling quite hopeless and helpless. Uh, it's something you can do. And if all of us do something, that's got to be better than nothing. All of our somethings together uh, can make something uh, positive happen. It's the only thing in history that ever has. Thank you so, so much, Bador and Khaled. You've both been absolutely magnificent to come on today and share this. I know it can't be easy. And we really appreciate it and all our listeners appreciate it. Thanks, Timbra. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't be despondent. Join Amnesty, follow Amnesty, follow MAP, support MAP, and please buy a ticket if you possibly can for our fundraiser and get there early if you want a seat or if you could afford to buy one of the VIP tickets, all the money goes to MAP, um, please do get in touch. That's roundhouse.org.uk for tickets. 
And the show is called Voices for Gaza, or you can find it on the Guilty Feminist live shows page, Voices for Gaza. Thank you so much. The Guilty Feminist is provided exclusively from Acast. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.